sure where that is. It's in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. Right there. So we are in Judges chapter 7 today. Um, if you're able to, I ask you to stand. We're going to read the, uh, well, we're going to go through the entire chapter. Well, we're going to go through 1 through 23. I'm not going to do the last, uh, the last two verses, 24 and 25. We'll do that for next week. But uh, I'm just going to read 1 through 8 right now. Just read 1 through 8. So if you're able to stand, I'd love for you to stand with us as we read God's word, uh, just as a way to honor his word. Um, and as I read, as I finish at verse 8, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And as I say that, you'll re- respond by saying, thanks be to God. And that's, of course, just saying that you're thankful the Lord would speak to us. He's so kind to us and he didn't have to, but he gave us his word. And you're also, if you would, when you say thanks be to God, um, say yes to the things that the Lord wants to teach you. And you, you're saying yes to, I want to obey those things. So, um, the Holy Spirit will certainly draw your attention and draw your mind and draw your affections towards Christ uh, during a time of study of Scripture. And so as that happens, when you say thanks be to God, you're saying, yes, Lord, I want, I want to obey those things. I want, to, I want to walk in those things. So starting at chapter 7, starting uh, verse 1. Then Jerubal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early in a camp beside the spring of Herod. <clears throat> and the camp of Midian uh, was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test you there. For anyone whom I say to you, this one... Shall go, to, shall go with you, shall go with you. And whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set uh, himself by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, then the number of those who lap putting their hands into their mouths was 300. But all the rest, some 9,700 uh, of the people dealt down knelt down to drink the water like a dog, basically. And so the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go, every man into his own home. So the, Lord, so the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below them in the valley. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. I'm going to pray before we jump in. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that a story of a man named Gideon leading um, in, in some kind of triumphal way men into battle, though it's a different battle than what we're familiar with, certainly has major relevance for us today as we see how God fights for them and fights our wars. We can certainly see how God has fought for us and what he's done for us. And so um, I pray as we look at your text this morning that we would see how you go before us, how you care for us, what you do for us, how you have conquered Satan, sin, and death for us, and that we would find ourselves just in awe of Christ and all of what Jesus would do for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're picking up in the middle of the story of Gideon. Last week, uh, Gideon was introduced to us in chapter 6. Uh, and if you remember, uh, starting in chapter, I'm looking at verse 6 right now, that they, had done what was, uh, they had done what was evil on the side of the Lord, Israel had, and they had been oppressed for at least seven years by these Midianites. And so the, the Lord came to Gideon, 
Um, you can see this starting around verse 11. And he says, the Lord's with you, O mighty man of valor. And so he lets him know that I'm with you and you're a mighty man of valor. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help uh, raise you up to stop the oppression of these Midianites. And you're a mighty man of valor. You can do this. Well, Gideon <clears throat> definitely struggles with belief of some sorts. He, he needs signs. He needs help. Uh, and so as we're studying through the book of Judges, we've seen that they've, they've gone through this cycle and over and over where the people are walking, they have peace, and then the judge or the, the rescuer, whichever one that's helping them, he would, he would die off. And so the people would rebel against God and God would get angry and he would allow oppression to come in. And for here, this time, particular time, it's the Midianites. They would be oppressed by the Midianites. They would call out in some kind of uh, way, whether it be certainly with repentant hearts or God can tell whether it's not repentant hearts. But nevertheless, God would be gracious to send some kind of rescuer. Uh, here it would be Gideon and Salvation will come through this rescuer. And as you go through the book of Judges, that cycle happens over and over. He'll, the, the rescuer will uh, bring peace to their land for some period of time. And then eventually that judge or that rescuer will die. And then it'll do the same thing. Except it just gets worse and worse as you're going through the book of Judges. Well, we're brought, we've been brought here to Gideon where God's called him out and told him that he's going to be the rescuer for Israel. And he, he definitely does not believe it. And so there's a series of signs that the Lord provides to him. We're, we're walking into chapter 7, knowing that the Lord has said, it's time for you to go and fight this battle. It's time for, you can beat the Midianites now. I've already told you you're a mighty man of valor. I've given you these signs to take your weak faith that you have, Gideon, and support it. Uh, just as a good God would do, overflowing and amazing grace and mercy towards him. And then we come into verse 7 where it's time for this to happen. Now, there's probably some 130,000 people in the Midianite army. Uh, and so the Israelites have 32,000. Now, the book of Judges uh, over and over is helping us see that there's a good God that really knows the hearts of his people and he pursues them. So the fact that he really knows the hearts of his people is key. Because he knows that even that at 32,000 versus 130,000, even though they're outnumbered, if they were to win, they wouldn't give the glory to God. They would say, we were, we were faster, we were better, we were sharper, we were smarter, etc. And so God, knowing that this is what's going on in their heart, he says, Jerubal said, uh, starting at verse 1, uh, all the people that were with him arose and they went to go fight. And the Lord said to Gideon, tell the people that are with you, you're too many. That's 32,000 right there. 32,000 for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Uh, and then it says why? Lest Israel boast over me saying my own hand has saved me. So here we see a relentless God who really knows the hearts of his people and knows you're not ready to have victory yet because you'll claim the victory. You won't give it all to God. You won't say, <laughs> we literally, we didn't do anything. As we go through this chapter, we'll see just how uh, whittled down the army is and then the battle that's, that, that is waged. So literally at the very end, Israel doesn't have anything to say besides, oh, God, we, didn't do, we really didn't do anything. God did the whole, the whole thing here. So uh, because that's the case, God sees that that's the case. And he says, uh, you have too many people at 32,000, lest Israel boast over me. And so... He says, my own hand 
Uh, you'll say, my own, own hand save me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people return and 10,000 remain. So we're going to see a, a decrease in numbers of this 32,000 happen in two different ways. The first one we just saw, which is fear. That happens in verses 3. Um, just 3, when it says... Uh, now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home. And so you go from 32,000, 22,000 pe- people leave, and you're down to 10,000. That's a 60% reduction right there. So Gideon, even though he's been proclaimed by God to be a mighty man of valor, he, he's looking at the numbers. He knows they have 130, and he knows we have 32,000. And then 60% of that army leaves, and now he's just got 10,000, and he's like... um, I trust you, God. I'm pretty sure. I mean, I have a lot of signs that I need. But you just, <laughs> you just reduced the army by 60%. And we're already outnumbered. And so I, I don't know why we're doing that. So we see the first kind of decrease in numbers happening because of fear. The second decrease in number happens in verses 4 through 8. And the, the only attribution I can make, it's not really out of fear. The only thing I can say is just, it's just God. I mean, you could say people who drink like dogs. But like, it's really just God decides how he's going to do it. So he's got 10,000. And in verse 4, the Lord said to Gideon, there's still too many people. So take them down to the water and I'm going to do a test. And the ones that I say should stay, they should stay. And the ones I say should go, should go. And you can see in verse 5, so he brought them down. And everybody that literally, you know, gets down, you know, on the water does like this slight little number. 9,700 of them do that. And they're like, you're out of here. You, you are not making it on the uh, prices right here. You're not the next contestant. And so you've got 300 left. And the other 300, they kind of come down here and they scoop the water at their hand and they do this, right? And, um, you know, some people will say the reason why those particular 300 are chosen is because uh, they don't, you know, just put their head down like this. And, but they're, they're aware people. They're aware people. So they, they get like this. And they're scooping the water and they're looking. I'm not sure that that's actually the point. I I don't think that the Lord just needs 300 really skilled, aware people. The better way to take this text is the Lord only needs 300 to beat 130,000. So it's, it's not necessarily about us as much as it is about a merciful God that says, I only need 300. So here we see a reduction of the army from 10,000 down to 300. The Lord said, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you. He says that in 7-7, I will save you. He's already told them this over in 6-16 as well when he says, I will be with you and you'll strike down the Midianites. So there's this promise again, just letting them know that he's going to be the one that's going to help them do all this. Now, Tim Keller, as he's commenting, says this. God didn't reduce the size so that he could work through them to win victory. He can win with one man or thousands. God reduces the number of soldiers because he knows that these men are too many for Israel to clearly see the, where the praise and the glory should go and that the victory is ultimately God's. And so the reason why he whittles it down is because he knows the people's hearts. So he brings it down to 300 people. So that means that they started the day with 32,000 and now they're at 300. I'm not a math major, but I'm pretty sure that's somewhere in the 90% of reduction. Uh, 95, maybe even 95. I'm not sure. You'll figure it out for me. Somebody will tell me between services. So um, it's, it's really low. But the point is this. Uh, God wants the Israelites to realize that the victory was God's. It wasn't theirs. The only part that they played was trusting and obeying. 
Sounds like our salvation, right? The only part that they played was trusting and obey. That way the glory is all God's and the privilege is, Israel, is, is Israel's. And so that brings us here to, uh, as we're finishing verses 1 through 8, what would be the first, uh, the first thing I want us to look at, the first uh, distinction that's made for us in, in verses 1 through 8, which is this. When God's fighting our wars, you can go ahead and put up the title. Uh, when God fights our wars, it's the, it's the first thing is I want you to see is that God does not save through expected means. God does not save through expected means. Finally here, uh, Gideon's going to have some faith. Um, and so God's going to fight the war for them. And when he does it, it's in, in completely unexpected means. This is not what they were expecting. When Gideon woke up that day and he thought that we were going to do it, uh, you know, he wasn't thinking that the, the army would go from 32,000 down to 300. He probably wasn't thinking that 22,000 of them were completely scared. But what we know is this, God saved through unexpected means. It's not usually the way that you plan it. Not usually. And the same thing's probably for your life. Whenever you met Christ, it was probably in an unexpected way. And the same thing for your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, the one that you really want to be saved, it probably won't be. It's the same thing with my dad. He, he was not saved in an, un, in an expected way. It was completely unexpected to me when at age 60, he asked me out of the blue on a Mother's Day, hey, can you tell me about how to become a Christian? I've just been thinking about it a long time. And I've been, I'd, I'd almost given up. Like, I'd, I'd, I don't know that I can ever know if he's gonna know Christ. And then all of a sudden one day he asked me. So he saved through unexpected means, usually not what we're expecting. That means for you and I, whenever we're <clears throat> navigating through life, whenever we're thinking through ministry, whenever we're walking, trying to fulfill the great commission, we need to realize that the Lord has all kinds of ways that he's going to work through us. So we don't wanna, we don't wanna close it in to say, all right, God, this is how you're gonna do it. God saves through all kinds of unexpected means. So use that in your mindset as you're walking to know that the Lord's going to save through all kinds of ways. Now, here at this particular moment here uh, is where Gideon is certainly going to have faith in God. With the 300 men who lapped, uh, I would give you Midianites in your hands. Let all those who go to his own home. So the people, verse 8, this is hilarious. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, which will be an, uh, a key part to the victory unbeknownst to them, I assume. And he sent all the rest away from Israel to his own tent. He reigned 300 men and the camp of Midian was below them. So at this particular point, um, I think that it means that finally Gideon has faith. Like the, the Hebrews 11 faith, where he's finally commended for his faith is in this particular moment. Like, okay, well, if God's going to do it, then <laughs> it's not gonna happen unless God does it because we only have 300, 300 people now. And so as we get into uh, verse nine, we see, I think the... Uh, the Lord pressing him, but also being gracious. So in verse, eight, verse nine, it says that that same night, the Lord said to him, arise, go down against the camp for I've given it into your hand. If we just stop there, we see you're ready. It's time to go. I've got the, I've got the people ready. It's time for you to go do it. So if Gideon at that moment would have said, let's go. I think that we wouldn't have the next verse. We wouldn't have verse 10. But the Lord, because he's so kind and he's so gracious and he knows our hearts and he knows what's going on in them, consider the 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 uh, command of God to go. But then as we see, not only that, in, as we see in verse 10, the patience of God, knowing the fear of Gideon to allow him to be reassured, even though he knows it's time to, time to go. It says, all right, arise and go down to the camp. I've given it into your hand. It's time to go. And then ver verse 10, he goes, but if you're afraid to go down, go down with, uh, to camp with Pura, your servant, 
And you shall hear what they say, and after your hands shall be strengthened. So it's time to go. You can win. You can do this. But if you're afraid, you might be. This is just this is amazing kindness to him to say, uh, if you need a little bit more reassurance, I'll provide it for you. All you got to do is take your servant with you at nighttime, sneak down in there to their camp, and just listen around. Whenever you get there, uh, listen to what's going on, and then you'll be reassured if you do that. And so, of course... Uh, Gideon is afraid and he does want to be reassured. Uh, God has just, he he has great reason to be afraid. As I said, God's just reduced the army from 32,000 down to 300. So I imagine he's probably a little bit scared. Uh, And then uh, I started thinking like what happens whenever we're called to do something like arise and go down to the camp. Whenever the Lord tells us arise and time to go, it's time for you to go. And we get scared. One, one commentator said it this way. And I think it's helpful for us to understand that it's normal for Christians um, to be scared when God's called them to do stuff. It's okay. As a matter of fact, this is how he says it. We all may need to alter our current stereotypes of what the servant of Christ is or is like. We sometimes dupe ourselves into thinking Uh, That a real servant of Christ is only someone with a dynamic, assured, confident, brash, fearless, witty, adventurous, or glamorous. With one or two appearances on a Christian television network. Um, Don't think that you're unusual, unusable, just because you don't have that air about you. Christ takes uncertain and fearful folk, strengthens their hands in the oddest ways to make them able to stand for him in school or home or work or your neighborhood or wherever I'm adding for him. Um, Probably shouldn't. We must not forget how the writer of Hebrews describes those we sometimes call the heroes of faith. They were weak people who were given strength to be brave in war and drive back foreign invaders. And so when we hear this, this kindness of God saying, but if you're afraid, this is the same thing that's being told to you. He, in verse nine, he's telling you, just like he's telling us in the Great Commission. All right, let's go. Let's go make disciples. But you are fearful. I am fearful. We, we get nervous whenever we have to go to somebody and start saying, hey, uh, do you go to church? Do you, do you know about Jesus? Uh, can I tell you something that's important to me? We all get nervous, right? And so it's okay to know that, that's okay, that the Lord is okay with it. It's okay to know that you don't have to be the superstar, but you are exactly who, whom, who, whom God is looking for. It's one of those. Um, I always get those confused sometimes. But you're exactly whom God is looking for. I'm gonna go with whom. So um, if you're afraid, it's okay. Now, when we get into verse 11, uh, I'm sorry, verse 12, it it gets kind of funny because go down there uh, and you'll be, you'll, you'll see th- things and you, your hand will be strengthened when you go down to the camp. So then it says, at first it doesn't sound like it's good news or that, that he, we're like wondering like, is this really going to be something that's going to strengthen? When he went down to Pira, with his Pira, his servant to the outpost of the armed men who were the camp and the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like, lo- <laughs> like locusts in abundance. We don't have tons of locusts, but we have like other stuff that's in abundance here. Just think of all the, the gnats that always fly around and like those big cloud swarms and you're like, get out of here. So it says when you look, he looks out here, he walks and he, just go down there. You're going to be strengthened in your faith. And he goes down there and he says that the people are so numerous, like, like, uh, like rednecks at Myrtle Beach in the summer, right? On the beach where you just, there's not, you're like, where can I go? There's no room here. Like, it's just, I, I'm from here, so I can say all that. And it's tr- perfect. Like, they're, they're everywhere. They're like the vat, like sands on the seashore. They're everywhere. And he's like, I'm thinking to myself, but you said to go down there because this is going to make him not as scared. And it says, he goes down there like, 
uh, locusts in abundance, and their camels were literally without number as the sand on the seashore in abundance. And so he goes down, and he's just like, oh man, this is supposed to make me not afraid, and it's kind of making me afraid. I'm not really sure how this is supposed to help. So I'm, I'm not encouraged right now. But then, uh, as we see here, the there's a little, he walks up on this conversation of these two soldiers and one gives a dream and one gives the interpretation of the dream. And that's the thing that's going to happen to, to encourage him. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. So they're clearly, you know, from the Soviet Union, uh, his comrade. And he said, <laughs> I thought this is a funny translation for the ESP there. Um, and he said, behold, I dreamed a dream and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and he came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned upside down so that the tent lay flat. And then his comrade (laughs) said, oh, this is so confusing to me, right? This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand, uh, into his hand Midian and all the camp. Now, I don't even know how these soldiers know Midian, who, who, who Gideon is. Uh, I'll read what one interpreter said. I thought this uh, pretty insightful. It leaves us wondering what this message, how this message, or how this interpretation of this dream can be derived. How can the link of the cake bread of Gideon? Um, somebody just texted me. It was 90, a reduction of ninety-nine percent. Um, thank you. Uh, <laughs> how can the? How can? He linked the cake of bread with Gideon. How can he link a, 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 a barley bread rolled in and the guy's like, oh, you know what? That barley bread, that reminds me of Gideon. How, how does that happen? This is what he says. How can he link the cake of bread with Gideon? How does he know Gideon's name? Why does the tent represent Midian? Uh, how does he interpret the dream negatively from the Midian point of view? Why would the cake not represent the Midianite forces and the smashed tent of the Israel camp? For the narrator and for Gideon, the answer is clear. This is nothing other than the fulfillment of Yahweh's promise in verse 11. Here's what I think. How can we know that? I have no clue, right? Literally, how can he get all of that from the dream? What we can know is this. This is what we can know. In verse 10, when God said, hey, if you're afraid, walk down in there. He had to have known everything that was going to happen. He had to have. I would even say maybe he ordained it. Therefore, this highlights for us significant sovereignty. I mean, unbelievable sovereignty. So even when he says, but if you're afraid, he knew that he was going to be afraid. Now, Gideon makes a real decision in that moment. That's a real free volitional decision. I do feel afraid. I do want to go there. But nevertheless, the sovereign God says to him, if you're afraid, which I know you are, I've already ordained these two people over here to have this conversation that when you hear it, you're going to be totally comforted. And one guy is going to uh, interpret this dream as Israel is going to smash us to death. How do they know Gideon? Who knows? But nevertheless, the point is this, as he said, nothing other can be understood besides this, the fulfillment of Yahweh's promise in verse 11, which is that your hand will be strengthened. Your hand will be strengthened. This means that this particular people that they're going against, um, (laughs) even though there are 130,000 and they only have 300, is not as strong as they think. They're not as strong as they think because they have God on their side. So when God fights our wars, this is the second thing. With Christ, number two, right there. All right. With Christ, your opposition is not as strong as you think it is. Your opposition that faces you is not as strong as you think it is. 
because God is significantly stronger, not infinitely stronger than your opposition. So it's not as strong. He, he's showing them by whittling it down to 300 <clears throat> that their opposition is nothing. Tim Keller says, Satan cannot force us to sin and the powers of idols can be broken. For those that are believers in Christ, don't miss that. Satan cannot force you to sin. And the power of idols in your life can be broken. Unbelievers cannot say that. Temptation is too much for them to withstand when the evil one comes to them. And they do not have the power because they don't have the Holy Spirit to withstand idolatry. But for those who are in Christ, our opposition is not as strong as you think. By the power of the Spirit, God goes to war with us and you can defeat any sin in your life. Will you reach perfection? No. But you will become more and more like Christ every single day. So remind yourself this then. Every day, every moment. Of the amazing power of the God that we serve. He has unbelievable power to destroy your oppression. To destroy your enemies. To destroy the sin in your life. To destroy Satan who wants to tempt you. And so whenever this happens... um, his comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of, uh, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given to his hand Midian and all the camp. Now, here's what happens. This is great. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. Where is he? He's still in the enemy's camp. Now, this word worshiped, in the Old Testament, literally means fell prostrate. So as soon as he heard it, Jordan didn't come, pure probably didn't have his acoustic with him. And like, all right, you ready? Here we go. Like, as soon as he hears of the goodness of God, he literally, in the enemy's camp, falls prostrate before his faith. I cannot believe this. The Lord has given these people into our hands. I, the only thing I can think to do right now, rather than get out of here in the enemy's camp, is he's going to protect me. So I can, I can fall down on my face in the enemy's camp and be safe because he's that strong. The only thing I can think to do right now out of sheer amazement and joy is give God praise. Is give God praise. Number three is this. Our appropriate first response to the power of God you can say, in our lives is praise. First response. Not delayed response. Not secondary response. Not final response. Although it can be all those things. First response our appropriate first response when the power of God has been displayed in our life, displayed in our church, displayed in your family, displayed among the believers in Christ, our first response should be praise, worship, adoration, fall down on your face, prostrate, give God the glory. I can remember the day that Evangeline was born. The whole time, the whole time Christian was pregnant, we knew something was wrong. And so, I mean, I was totally a wreck and totally uncertain what was going to happen that day. We just had no idea. And so I remember when she was born, not knowing at that particular moment, what's going to happen? Is she going to live? Is she not going to live? Uh, we just knew there was a lot of prayer. There's a lot of prayer going. And finally, there she's born and she lives. And the power of God was on absolute full display that day. And the only thing I could think to do was worship. I'm, I didn't fall down on the hospital floor because I'm a germaphobe. But um, I literally sat there worship. I, 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 we, they took her to the NICU pretty quickly. And I can just remember sitting there kind of over her little glass box crib thing and just holding her little hand and waves of, of, of like 
I would cry for a while and people would walk by and they, they didn't know why I was crying. The, the, the chaplain came up to me, wanted to know that I was okay. And I'm like, no, I'm like you, man. We're good. I'm a minister. I'm just, this is, this is like me worshiping. I, so for hours that she was born and I, for hours until I literally couldn't stay awake or stand, I just stayed there over her little glass box crib, holding her hand, crying and praising, crying and praising, crying and praising until I had to sit down and then I fell asleep and the nurse was like, you're not allowed to sleep in the NICU. And I had to leave. Um, but what I'm saying is this, and you hesitate as a pastor to give illustrations where you're the hero. I don't feel like I'm the hero. He was the hero because she's still alive. But my point is this. The only thing I knew to do at that point is just, is just praise. I didn't know what else to do. When the power of God is on such amazing display in your life, like she lived and she still is right now. And you've experienced these things in your life where God's just blown up your life with some kind of powerful moment. You're just... <laughs> Only God did that. Our, our first response should be praise. Our first response should be praise. And so that means that worship and praise is not um, exclusively tied to this room for Remedy Church, right? Because that's, that's not what was going on with me there. Jordan wasn't with me. Um, worship doesn't just happen here. It happens here. And this fuels worship out there. And when we worship out there, it fuels us to worship in here together. They, they cycle together in a positive way. But nevertheless, our, our appropriate response should be worship. Our appropriate first response whenever the Lord does something unbelievable is to praise him. And here Gideon is literally laying prostrate on the ground. I just love that. This worship on the enemy ground. He, he knows that he's safe. He doesn't even go back to his own turf first. God's already said, I'm going to go ahead of you. Everything's going to be all right. And all Gideon, Gideon can do is praise him. And I want you to notice this, okay? Once God's given him the assurance and he worships, that, uh, that assurance and worship turns into a pretty amazing confidence. Now, you might say to yourself, I lack confidence in seeing things happen. Watch what he does here. This, this moment of reassurance that the Lord gives him, coupled with his heart exploding in worship, sends him into this, this confident march. The Lord's going to do it. The Lord's going to do it. And here we see it here. Um, this non-heroic hero all of a sudden becomes confident. Verse 15, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and his interpretation, he worshiped. He returned to the camp of Israel and he said, this is awesome. Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Now, this is the exact thing, same thing that God had told him basically in verse 9. Arise, go down to the camp, for I've given it into your hand. He's taken the word of God that's been given to him. He has the reassurance from the Lord. He's worshiped the Lord. And he literally passes on almost the identical message that God gave him in verse 9 to the people he's leading now, as you see it in the end of 15. Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Not our, but your so he's, he's helping them see that they're empowered. And then it says, now there's no, in verse 16 through 18, we see the, uh, the plan. We see the plan. But as you see the plan, it doesn't seem like there was a divine intervention in how the plan should go. It seems like Gideon walks in this confidence and just has the plan himself, which is fine. Here's the plan. I've got it. <laughs> I love the plan. Um, here it is. Verse 16, he divided the 300 men into three companies and he put trumpets in their hands all of them, and empty jars with torches inside the jars. That's, their, that's the plan. We're going to get 300 of y'all, 100, 100, 100. Each of you take a trumpet. It's going to be key. 
<laughs> take a jar and a, and a torch, it's like a little flashlight, trumpet and a flashlight. That's what you got. And this is, this is going to, we're going to win. <laughs> and he said to them, then just look at me and do what I do. And when we come to the outskirts of the camp, do what I do. When I blow the trumpet and I, who are all who are with me, blow the trumpets on every side, all the camp. Um, and we shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So that's the plan. The plan is we got four weapons here. We got the trumpet, we got jars, we got fire, and we got shouting. Now you might not think shouting's a, a, a real weapon, but if you've been to my house and you've been around my kids, shouting can be a real weapon. My kids are equipped with that weapon. They've got it down. But nevertheless, that's their four weapons. And it, when you read it on the face of it, it's just literally the most ridiculous plan. So Gideon, we're not taking swords? Nope, no swords. We're going to make them deaf? What are we going to do? I'm going to blow the trump in their ear? How's this going to work? Um, how is it that we're going to kill them without weapons? The strategy is confusion. The strategy is confusion. And we can see how, how he's going to do it. It tells us in 19b, um, where it says, So Gideon, the hundred men who were with him, came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning. And here it is. Came to the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. So that's telling us what's going on. In this particular time, especially at nighttime, these armies would have kind of revolving watches, these three or four watches during the night. And as one of the, you know, the third of the camp or the fourth of the army was finishing theirs, the next one would come in and the next one would go back out. And so Gideon's coming at the changing of it. So uh, there's people in the camp that are asleep who are being waked up by this crazy loud noises and they look out and they see the fire and of course they're groggy. They grab their swords and they walk out and as they do, who do they see? People they don't necessarily know walking at them with swords. The people walking at with them with swords are the people that were on watch. And so he does it at one of the most strategic time to cause confusion. And so while they're blowing trumpets and throwing things on the ground, the Midianites just think we're being attacked but they're just killing themselves. So that's the, that's the plan. Um, this was a key time. As they're groggy, they fight. And confusion being the main strategy, it works. So verse 19, so Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle of the watch when they had just set the watch. And here it is. They blew the trumpets. They smashed the jars that were in their hands. And then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held the hands in their torches and the right hands of trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword, ironically, which they don't use, for the Lord and for Gideon. That's their, that's, their, uh, that's their battle cry. That's their battle cry. I'm like, why are they screaming that? That's their battle cry. I, I didn't understand battle cries because I figured it out um, one day. Jack explained it to me. So I was asking him one day, I was like, why does Auburn have two mascots? Why do they have the tigers and the eagles? That, can't they pick one? And he's like, that's not it. No, what it is, is that it's just the tigers. The war eagle is their battle cry. That's like, we scream war eagle. They, they don't have a mascot of eagle. I'm like, ah, oh, okay. I get it. So that's what's going on here. It's, it's the equivalent of yelling war eagle, but they're yelling for the Lord and for God because it's not football. It's, you know, God's fighting. And so, but it's the same kind of thing. It's their battle cry when they scream a sword for the Lord and Gideon. And that means everybody in that camp hears, you know, fire going everywhere, Things are smashing, trumpets are blowing, and they're just thinking, they're screaming, they're coming after us. And so they're getting their sword and they're just, they're just fighting in the dark, but they're fighting each other. And it works. It says this, um, every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. So they have kind of three, three things that they do, this psychological warfare of the day. It causes their army to run, cry out, and flee. When they blew the trumpets, here it is, here it is, so that we know 
that it's God that does it. The middle of 22, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade, again, because they're Soviet Union soldiers, um, and against all the army, against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beshittah towards Zerah, as far as the border of Abel-Hamalo, etc. And when the men of Israel were called out from Nephtali and Asher and Manasseh, they pursued after Midian. Now, we're going to get to 23. I'm going to tie in 23 to next week because I think this might be something Gideon should not have done. He's already been whittled down to 300. And all of a sudden, as soon as all this happens, they call more soldiers in. Well, we're going to get to that later uh, as we see some of the downfalls of Gideon next week. But nevertheless, here we see this. Verse 22, they blew the trumpets. The Lord said every man against themselves, all their comrades and all the army. So here we see this. Um, and it brings us to our, our fourth point when God's fighting for us. is when God moves decisively on our behalf, we are left with no doubt that he gets all the credit and all the glory. When God moves decisively on our behalf, we are left with saying, he gets all the, so y- y- there's no way that these people could have gone home. And when they go home, what could they say? We, uh, Joe win? Yeah, we won. We beat them. You should have seen it. We blew horns really loud though. I mean, it was like really loud. And then we threw our jars down on the ground really hard. Like what, what else can they say besides we, we held our fire in the air and we yelled at them. Like what, what else can they say? Like, oh, well then you didn't really do anything. Sounds like <laughs> good job for screaming. I'm glad I got to sleep in. Sounds like God did it. And they're like, yes, that's actually what happened. God did the whole thing, which is the whole point of this. When God moves decisively on our behalf, we are left with absolutely no doubt that he gets all the glory and all the credit. As Keller says, none of them could go home singing their own praises, but only what the Lord had done while they simply watched. While they simply watched. Which means in our own lives, when God moves, when God does something amazing, it's so easy for us to kind of take the credit. Whenever you or I speak to our children, they, all of a sudden they obey. We're like, man, that was just awesome there. That was, no, it was the Lord, right? The Lord gets the credit. The Lord gets the glory. Whenever God saves your neighbor and you've been trying to, the Lord gets the credit. The Lord gets the glory. It's all about him, not about us. The, God fighting for us, moving on our behalf, doing things for us is always meant for us to see this particular story in mind. It wasn't me. Um, As a matter of fact, this plan was pretty ridiculous on his face to fight. I'm just going to blow trumpets. I mean, that's not really a winning strategy. No one's going to do that in 2018 and win, right? But nevertheless, unless the Lord causes it to, to come about. So when we see this, what we can deduce is this, is that God is the one and he's determined as we go all the way back up to verse two and, ch- and chapter two, lest Israel boast over me saying my own hand was saved me. God knows their hearts and because he knows their hearts, he knows our hearts and he's determined to fight for us, no doubt. That's, there's no doubt about it. He's determined to fight for us, but he wants us to realize when he does this, he's going to do it through unexpected means. It's not how you think and so don't put him in the box of how he's going to do it. Whenever you have opposition and you think you are overcome, realize there's no level of opposition that Christ can overcome because he's infinitely stronger than any kind of oppression, sin, um, habit, whatever is going on in your life. And whenever the Lord moves, whenever the Lord finally moves, give him the praise and glory and he gets it all. All of the credit and all the glory goes to him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that you have already gone before us. 
You have fought the ultimate war for us at the cross. You have defeated Satan's sin and death for us. You get all the glory. And all we can say is, look what Christ has done. He's died on the cross for me. He saved me from my sin. There's no way I could have ever fought that war. I didn't even know I was supposed to fight that war. And you've sovereignly gone ahead before me, defeated Satan's sin and death on the cross, brought me into your family, given me the faith necessary to put in you, caused my heart to want repentance because it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. And now, Lord, I'm saved. Now I'm forgiven of my sin. And now, because of that, I serve King Jesus gladly and want to give him all the glory. So God, I pray for us all that as we go through life, we would see these things happening in our life and that we would understand that the good news of Christ is the impetus and the fuel that causes these things to happen. It's the catalyst that gets us started and it's the fuel that helps us keep going. The good news of Jesus, the gospel that he would die for us on the cross. It's our only hope. So thank you for fighting the most important battle of our lives on the cross so that we can be forgiven of our sin and know you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.